of such great powers or beings, there may be conceivably a survival. A survival of a hugely remote period when consciousness was manifested, perhaps in shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity. Forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods, monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. Those are the words of Algernon Blackwood, English writer of The Strange and The Uncanny. I use them here because they reflect, in a way, what this episode is going to be about. A memory of an ancient truth that has survived only through myth and legend. The original source twisted and corrupted until it is almost unrecognisable. The archaeologist and arch-witch cult mythmaker Margaret Murray would probably recognise this sentiment. I've also chosen this quote because it kicks off H.P. Lovecraft's most famous tale, 1928's The Call of Cthulhu. Even those who know nothing of Lovecraft have heard of this story, and it's in this tale that I first came across the work of Margaret Murray. Now, if you know your Lovecraft, and you should, for though the old gent of providence remains plenty problematic, his influence on contemporary horror, fantasy, and fan culture is almost impossible to overestimate, well, you'll have noted that Margaret Murray shows up several times in his work, frequently mentioned by name. Her mention in Call of Cthulhu comes early, when the first narrator, Francis Whalen Thurston, comes into possession of a batch of artefacts and notes upon the death of a relative. Among these bits and pieces is a horrific statuette of the great tentacle-faced old god himself. And Thurston doesn't know it yet, but the statue and the notes accompanying it are going to connect him to a cult in the Louisiana swamps that carry out rituals unchanged from ancient pre-Christian times. Among the papers, Thurston finds... The other manuscript papers were all brief notes, some of them accounts of the queer dreams of different persons, some of them citations from theosophical books and magazines, notably W. Scott Eliot's Atlantis and the Lost Lemuria, and the rest comments on long-surviving secret societies and hidden cults, with references to passages in such mythological and anthropological source books as Fraser's Golden Bough and Miss Murray's Witch Cult in Western Europe. Now, there's a bit to unpack here. Lovecraft, of course, is fond of dropping his influences into his work, giving us a clue as to just what he has been reading himself. In this paragraph alone, we have references to Theosophy, a mid-19th century occult religion that pretty much laid the groundwork for what would come to be known as New Age in the 20th century, and William Scott Eliot, who focused on the theosophical idea of primal, pre-human root races, and who also eventually married a woman from my own county, Cork. Now, Scott Elliot is most famous for his 1904 book, Atlantis and the Lost Lemuria, which Lovecraft mentions here. The concept of Atlantis, of course, had been doing a roaring trade among Victorian pseudoscientists and mythmakers ever since the Irish-American Minnesota congressman Ignatius Donnelly resurrected the idea back in the 1880s. Scott Elliot, however, was one of those who explored the idea of a different sunken continent, except when other authors sometimes insisted that in fact it was the same as Atlantis. This continent was known as Lemuria. The concept of Lemuria was an archaic scientific idea, a hypothetical sunken continent in the Indian Ocean, invented to explain why perhaps there were lemurs in both Madagascar and India, 
hence the name Lemuria. Of course, this idea as a scientific idea was rendered unnecessary upon the discovery of plate tectonics in the 20th century. Without going too deep down the hollow earth rabbit hole, theosophists believed that four root races lived on earth before man. They were known as the Polarian, the Hyperborean, which should sound familiar to fans of Robert E. Howard and Conan the Barbarian, the Lemurians and the Atlanteans. So Helena Blavatsky, the Russian mystic who came up with theosophy, was using the trendy scientific idea of Lemuria and then stuck it on her list of root races, alongside the more fantastical Atlantis. Next, and getting closer to the sharp end of my theme for this episode, Lovecraft mentions The Golden Bough, an 1890 book by the Scottish anthropologist Sir James Fraser. Still hugely influential, decades after it had ceased to be taken seriously by the scientific community, The Golden Bough purported to be a study of comparative anthropology, a comparison of myth and magic from cultures around the world and in antiquity. Now, Fraser's chief idea in the book was that many ancient cults shared common traits and ideas, that many of them were in essence fertility cults, and that their myths and stories could be interpreted as extensions of this. He collected stories of human sacrifice, often taken from Julius Caesar's bad-mouthing of his enemies, the Celts, as well as archetypes such as what he called the dying god and the scapegoat. He even believed that Christianity and the story of Jesus' sacrifice could in fact be seen as part of this fertility cult template, which in 1890s Britain was scandalous to say the least. Fraser himself admitted that his ideas were only speculative, and it wasn't long before most anthropologists endeavoured to keep his work at arm's length. But though the scientific world may have moved on, the effect of the golden bough on the public was to have much longer-lasting effects. He had enormous popular appeal and disproportionate influence over the public's concept of the ancient world, in a manner perhaps similar to the way in which today the common perceptions of archaeology owe far more to renegade mythmakers such as Indiana Jones, Eric von Daniken and Graham Hancock than they do to any actual real scientists. And even among those real researchers who are well known, Sir Flinders Petrie or Howard Carter, the list bends disproportionately in favour of those who made radical discoveries in the early days of archaeology, often discoveries that were made when the ancient world was still regarded as a place of myth and magic. Just as a, for example, when filmmaker Robin Hardy filmed seminal British folk horror film The Wicker Man in 1973, one of his chief texts in recreating the pagan cult seen in the film was not any sober, up-to-date scientific take on the ancient Celts, but you guessed it, The Golden Bough, by that point discredited for over 80 years. So, much as I love it, The Wicker Man's influential imagery of pagans constructing giant wicker men and burning human sacrifices comes directly from Julius Caesar's questionable military propaganda about the Celts, funneled directly via James Fraser's The Golden Bough. And here is Britain's 1930s occult uncle, thriller writer Dennis Wheatley, a favourite of mine, again utilising Fraser's ideas in his 1934 novel, The Devil Rides Out. Dear me, well, Tanith was the moon goddess of the Carthaginians. Thousands of years earlier, the Egyptians called her Isis, and in the intervening stage, she was known to the Phoenicians as Lady Astaroth. They worshipped her in sacred groves, where doves were sacrificed and unmentionable scenes of licentiousness took place. 
The god Adonis was her lover, and the people wept for his mythical death each year, believing upon him as a redeemer of mankind. As they went in processions to her shrines, they wrought themselves into the wildest frenzy, and to slake the thwarted passion of the widowed goddess, gashed themselves with knives. Sir George Fraser's golden bow will tell you all about it, but the blood that was shed still lives, Rex, and she has been thirsty through these Christian centuries for more. Phew. Well, thanks, Lovecraft. You gave me quite a bit of homework to do just there. So many rabbit holes, and each of them just crying out to be made into an Indiana Jones film. Or at least, you know, a James Rollins novel or something. So you see, old Howard Phillips is playing with the heavy hitters when he name drops these guys in Call of Cthulhu. And right next to George Fraser, he places another name, Margaret Murray, and her book, The Witch Cult in Western Europe. You see, The Golden Bow was just the beginning. Yes, the grand tradition of pseudo-intellectual British eccentrics was about to add another extraordinary character to the mix, preparing the way for what we would eventually know as Wicca. Margaret Murray would forever change what it meant to be a witch. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast about why people believe weird things. This episode, all of them witches, Margaret Murray and the origins of Wicca. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You can prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird. You find me in the middle of a gloomy English winter with neither sun nor snow to break the eternal grey monotony here in the deepest, most devil-accursed part of the Witch County, Essex. To keep me warm on my exploration of Margaret Murray's transformation of the concept of the witch, I have a fine fire blazing and a bottle of Suffolk County Ale from Neathergate Brewing. I picked up a batch of this fine company's products while I was road tripping around North Essex and Suffolk along the Stour Valley and the Dedham Vale, visiting towns and villages associated with the witch trials of the 1600s and the career of the infamous witchfinder general himself, Matthew Hopkins. Neathergate Brewing operates out of a suitably witchy-looking black barn, where burnt beams and Tudor-era planks rub against ale-swilling hipsters, myself included, swigging in the tap room and on the vast beer lawn. Tis a fine spot. Anyway, I began before the break with Lovecraft because that's how I first became aware of the work of Margaret Murray. One of the most fun things about Lovecraft is that, though he changed American fantastic literature in a way that's revolutionary, he literally wears his influences on his sleeve, and dedicated fans like myself tend to delve into the works that inspired him. Lovecraft was extraordinarily well-read in weird literature, and his essay Supernatural Horror in Literature is a great way to expand upon your own horror reading. The cult of Cthulhu from that famous story is clearly inspired by the ideas of Margaret Murray. And here's what the man himself had to say on his own view about her ideas in a 1924 letter to friend Lillian Clark. The most revealing and stupefying book among those I have been reading is The Witch Cult in Western Europe by Margaret Alice Murray, which was published in 1921 and reviewed with great attention by Burton Rascoe in the Tribune. In this book, the problem of witchcraft superstition is attacked from an entirely new angle, 
wherein the explanation of delusion and hysteria is discarded in favour of a hypothesis almost exactly like the one used by Arthur Macken in fiction, that there has existed since prehistoric times, side by side with the dominant religion, a dark secret and terrible system of worship nocturnally practised by the peasants and including the most horrible rites and incantations. Oh, there he goes again, name-dropping more writers so that I have to explain. Well, Arthur Macken was a Welsh writer whom Lovecraft adored. He's mostly remembered today for his short story, The Bowmen, which inadvertently created the World War I legend of the Angels of Mons. According to the blog, on an Underwood number no. 5 by Todd V. Bick, Lovecraft is referring here to one of Macken's stories called The Novel of the Black Seal from 1895, which deals with an undiscovered race of fairy-like pre-humans living beneath the earth in the Welsh hills. More on this idea later. Anyway, Lovecraft does a pretty good job here of summing up Murray's ideas, though note that he sees the witch cult as being something foul and loathsome, and that is not exactly Murray's take on it, as we'll discover. Now, leaving aside some fairly typical racism, Lovecraft continues, buttressed by an amazing array of sound documentary evidence taken from witchcraft trial reports, Miss Murray unhesitatingly asserts that the similarities and consistencies in the testimony of witch suspects cannot be explained on any assumption save one which allow for a certain amount of actuality. In her mind, practically all the confessions treat not of dreams and delusions, but form highly coloured versions of real meetings and ceremonies conducted in deep woods and lonely places betwixt midnight and dawn, attended by secretly initiated peasants stolen thither one by one and presided over by local cult leaders clad in animal skins and called the devils of their particular branches or covens. The hideous nature of the cult rites is amply attested and the whole subject takes on a new fascination when one reflects that the system probably survived to comparatively recent times. Note how Lovecraft seems to accept these ideas as being literally true. This is particularly interesting as Lovecraft was a noted materialist and a militant atheist who, despite his masterful use of the fantastic in fiction, avoided any whiff of what we might today call woo in real life. This speaks to how well accepted Murray's ideas were amongst the general non-academic population. According to the New England Folklore blog, Lovecraft spoke in another letter about the possibility of this ancient European religion coming to America and inspiring the infamous Salem witch trials. For my part, I doubt if a compact coven existed, but certainly think that people had come to Salem who had a direct personal knowledge of the cult, and who were perhaps initiated members of it. I think that some of the rites and formulae of the cult must have been talked about secretly among certain elements, and perhaps furtively practiced by the few degenerates involved. Most of the people hanged were probably innocent, yet I do think there was a concrete, sordid background not present in any other New England witch case. And so, finally, after an exhaustive and eldritch beginning, we come at last to Murray herself, and find that among the rich pantheon of turn-of-the-century British eccentrics who made Britain magical, Murray was extraordinary in that she was not some rank amateur with a hobby and a pet theory, but in fact a highly respected and groundbreaking academic. Margaret Alice Murray was born in Calcutta in 1863, a product of the imperial system which had produced generations of upper-middle-class British Indian families. As part of the British ruling elite and the civil service machinery that governed the vast empire on skeleton staffing, 
Murray's family existed in a society in which it was considered rather pucka for well-bred gentlemen to take an interest in archaeology, though usually not so much for women. Murray lived in a house with ten Indian servants, though in other respects she was literally walled off from indigenous Indian society. Nevertheless, Anglo-Indians, as the British-descended families living in India were then known, felt themselves to be quite different from fully British people and frequently thought themselves neglected and misunderstood by those back at home. In 1870, Murray was sent to live with her Uncle John in Berkshire in England. John was a vicar, but he also had an interest in archaeology. Murray and her sister Mary were shuttled from place to place during their youth and young adulthood, spending time in Germany, London and Warwickshire, with extended periods spent back in Calcutta in between. In 1894, at 30 years old, Murray joined the newly created Department of Egyptology at University College London. The department was chaired by the famous Egyptologist Sir William Flinders Petrie. Interestingly, in opposition to some of the stereotypes we tend to have about this time, she was not the only woman on the course. Now this aspect of Murray's life is crucial when assessing what came later. Flinders Petrie was an international figure, the father of modern Egyptology. It isn't stretching things too much to say that before his time, archaeology was more an exercise in smash and grab and looting than a studied science, nor to say that he helped archaeology to grow up and become a real science. By the 1890s, Flinders Petrie was training what would become the first generation of true archaeologists, and for Margaret Murray to be among them puts her in the top rank of archaeological royalty. Murray worked closely with Petrie, creating illustrations for his dig at a site named Quift in Egypt, even lecturing in his stead while he was away on excavations. Soon, she was lecturing on ancient Egyptian history, religion and language, both at the university and at the British Museum, becoming the first female lecturer in archaeology in Britain. She eventually led excavations in Egypt, dealing with men who did not like taking orders from a woman, uncovering new sites and generally making her name as a rising star in the field of Egyptology. During the First World War, Murray carefully balanced her respectable public career as an academic with promoting feminism in ways that were considered radical at the time. She scored many victories for the women who worked in academia in the institutions where she worked, overturning long-standing habits in these traditionally male-dominated environments. All in all, Murray was an extraordinary woman, deserving of tremendous respect for her achievements in many fields. But, rightly or wrongly, it is her involvement with the, shall we say, more mythic elements of specifically British history that were to be her lasting legacy. An illness during the First World War that sent her to recuperate near Glastonbury Abbey may have sparked this change of direction. Murray became interested in the legends of King Arthur and the Holy Grail. She had taken her first steps into the murky and much mythologised world of ancient Celtic Britain. The Celts, of course, had always been a people on the fringe of history, and for many, on the fringe of reality too. By comparison with the ancient Greeks and the Celts' deadly enemies, the Romans, they left few structures behind and few written records too. This left something of a blank canvas, one on which Victorian and Edwardian nationalists and pseudo-historians were always happy to write and rewrite their own interpretations of these fierce ancient warriors. Suffice it to say that by the time Murray started investigating the Celts, they were already well swaddled in layers of impenetrable myth and mysticism. 
She came to write a number of articles in the journal Folklore and the Scottish Historical Review that road-tested the ideas that were to bear fruition in her 1921 book The Witch Cult in Western Europe. For good or for ill, it was the book that was to put Murray on the map. At the time the book was published, the standard academic take on the early modern witch trials, both European and in the New World, was that there never had been any real witches, the whole episode being generally written off as a kind of mass hysteria. Murray's take was different. In the book, she is not so quick to dismiss the massed evidence of the witch believers. She notes that intelligent, respectable men believed in the existence of witches, Lord Bacon, Walter Raleigh, Henry Moore. She gathers immense amounts of transcripts of the trials themselves, taking the confessions at face value and cross-referencing them to find consistencies. Her conclusion? That the accused were guilty of something. There really did exist in those days a hidden network of forbidden believers, a secret society of ancient wisdom. But to Murray, their arcane woodland rites were not evidence of devil worship. These were not disciples of the Satan of the Bible, as was believed by their accusers at the time. They were, instead, something quite different. Ritual witchcraft, or as I propose to call it, the Dianic cult, embraces the religious beliefs and ritual of the people, known in late medieval times as witches. The evidence proves that underlying the Christian religion was a cult practiced by many classes of the community, chiefly, however, by the more ignorant or those in the less thickly inhabited parts of the country. It can be traced back to pre-Christian times and appears to be the ancient religion of Western Europe. The god, anthropomorphic, was worshipped in well-defined rites, the organization was highly developed and the ritual is analogous to many other ancient rituals. The dates of the chief festivals suggest that the religion belonged to a race which had not yet reached the agricultural stage. I have not attempted to disentangle the various cults. I am content merely to point out that it was a definite religion with beliefs, ritual and organization as highly developed as that of any other cult in the world. Murray believed that what the early modern Christians termed witches were in truth a survival of some incredibly ancient, pan-European pagan cult that predated Christianity. Following on from the ideas of Fraser, these pagans were sun-worshipping, nature-worshipping, and ritual-orientated. And what of the so-called devil these people worshipped? Well, years later, Murray wrote, When I suddenly realised that the so-called devil was simply a disguised man, I was startled, almost alarmed, by the way the recorded facts fell into place and showed that the witches were members of an old and primitive form of religion, and the records had been made by members of a new and persecuting form. For hundreds of years, Christians had adapted elements of actual pagan gods to adorn their visions of an antagonistic Satan. The horns and cloven hooves of the Greek god Pan spring to mind. Now Murray claimed that the Christian devil was a misidentification of the pagans' real gods, Janus, the male or horned god, and Diana, the female nurturing god of fertility. Interestingly, especially keeping in mind the influence Murray's ideas would eventually have on feminist New Age and Wiccan thought, she thought the male deity to be the primary focus of worship. It must be said, however, that Murray's interpretation of the witches themselves was one of the first that made positive figures of them. Murray continued the dodgy assumption that linked Christian festivals to ancient, supposedly Celtic ones, imagining that her witch cult 
held their main festivities, or Sabbaths, on May Eve and November Eve. Based on the writings of Cotton Mather, who persecuted witches in New England in the 17th century, she concluded that her witches were organised into separate, self-sufficient cells, or covens, often of 13 members. They had a single leader each, usually male, and held what she termed witches' mass, using black candles, black bread, and black wine. Now, knowingly or unknowingly, Murray is here drawing on the rich mythology of 19th century black magic and occultism, and kind of retrofitting it back onto her ancient cult. In her first book, at least, she assumed that though the witch cult might have survived up until early modern times, it was presumably extinct at the time of writing. She is also vague about whether or not the witch cult is the same religion as was practiced by the ancient Celtic druids, though when the myth later took on a life of its own, this connection was pretty often just assumed by other writers. Now the bulk of Murray's evidence comes from the witch trials themselves, mostly in the form of the witch's confessions. In them, she detects elements that are similar across centuries of trials across all the countries of Europe. A large proportion of her book consists of these verbatim reports. She picks over them, extracting the details of the cult, identifying what they truly believe, rather than what Christianity has made of them. These reports are replete with descriptions of the devil appearing as a man in black, often with horns, antlers or cloven hooves, and in some of the more insalubrious accounts, an enormous phallus. This, Murray interprets as meaning that the witch cult covens chose a leader who would dress up as the horned god to have intercourse with initiates, wielding a gigantic artificial member. And if that wasn't strange enough, she proposes that after Christianity largely quashed the witch cult, memories of it lived on in the many tales of little people found across Europe. The connection of the witches and fairies opens up a very wide field. At present, it is little more than speculation that the two are identical, but there is promise that the theory may be proved at some later date when the subject is more fully worked out. It is now a commonplace of anthropology that the tale of fairies and elves preserve the tradition of a dwarf race which once inhabited northern and western Europe. Successive invasions drove them to the less fertile parts of each country which they inhabited. Some betook themselves to the inhospitable north or the equally inhospitable mountains. Some, however, remained in the open heaths and moors, living as mound dwellers, venturing out chiefly at night and coming in contact with the ruling races only on rare occasions. As the conqueror always regards the religion of the conquered as superior to his own in the arts of evil magic, the dwarf race obtained the reputation of wizards and magicians, and their god was identified by the conquerors with the principle of evil. The identification of the witches with the dwarf or fairy race would give us a clear insight into much of the civilization of the early European peoples, especially as regards their religious ideas. Strange as this sounds, as an Irish person, this does somewhat remind me of the interpretations of Irish myth in which the Tua de Danon, the ancient supernatural race who ruled Ireland before the coming of the Milesians and who were defeated and banished to an underground realm only occasionally seen on the surface thereafter until they became known as the little people of the fairy forts or the Dinashia. Though Murray's version of the witch cult hypothesis proved to be the most influential, 
it would be remiss of me not to point out that there were precedents for this idea. From the book Cursed Britain by Thomas Waters, a book which only came out last year at the end of 2019 and which I'm still making my way through, Waters points out some information about a French historian by the name of Jules Michelet. He says, Witches, he argued, were neither Satanists nor sorcerers, but mystic physicians and devotees of ancient paganism. Not the paganism of Hellenic Greece or Imperial Rome, the focus of the curriculums at Britain's public schools. The witches' creed was imagined to be something more primal, an underground cult suppressed by Europe's churches. A sensual nature religion dedicated to fertility, born in dark forests and amid stone circles, ruled by druids, or perhaps even a female priesthood. This thesis arrived in Britain in 1863 in a translated and highly censored edition of Michelet's La Sorciere, the Witch of the Middle Ages. Waters also states, Rather than avant-garde occultists, it was amateur British scholars who endorsed the idea that witches were pagans. The thesis became central to the work of folklorists and was most fully and fancifully elaborated by the American Charles Leland. In 1891, at the International Folklore Conference at London's Burlington House, Leland received loud applause when he laid out his new theory about the survival of a sort of shamanic witchcraft in Tuscany in northern Italy. Witches weren't devil worshippers, Leland claimed, but individuals who inherited the power to travel abroad in ethereal form at night in order to do battle with genuinely evil powers. In 1899, he published the thesis in Aradia, or The Gospel of the Witches. This creative but unscholarly book went on to be a core text of Wicca, the neo-pagan nature religion founded by Gerald Gardner around the mid-20th century. And more about Wicca and Gerald Gardner in our concluding episode. The cult conjured up by Murray in her book was, in the years to come, to take on a life of its own. While academics were quick to rubbish her claims, the idea of an ancient, surviving, pagan secret religion, coming as it did from someone with serious academic credentials, albeit in Egyptology rather than European anthropology, lit a flame that was to set strange fires alight in Western occultism for the rest of the 20th century. In 1929, she was invited to write the entry on witchcraft for the Encyclopaedia Britannica, which no doubt helped to spread the influence of her ideas. In Supernatural Horror in Literature, Lovecraft writes, Much of the power of Western horror lore was undoubtedly due to the hidden but often suspected presence of a hideous cult of nocturnal worshippers whose strange customs, descended from pre-Aryan and pre-agricultural times when a squat race roved over Europe with their flocks and herds, were rooted in the most revolting fertility rites of immemorial antiquity. This secret religion stealthily handed down amongst peasants for thousands of years despite the outward reign of the Druidic, Greco-Roman and Christian faiths in the regions involved was marked by wild witches' sabbaths in lonely woods and atop distant hills on Valpurgis night and Halloween, the traditional breeding seasons of the goats and sheep and cattle, and became the source of vast riches of sorcery legend, besides provoking extensive witchcraft prosecutions, of which the Salem Affair forms the chief American example. 
Here, Lovecraft joins the long and august list of authorities who assume that Murray's bizarre witch cult hypothesis was literally true. Indeed, Lovecraft based the Louisiana Swamp Cthulhu cult in his most famous tale on Murray's supposed pagans. So, in a way, no Murray, no Cthulhu. In Paperbacks from Hell, Grady Hendrix puts forward the idea that horror fiction was stuck in something of a rut in the mid-20th century, recycling tired old gothic tropes, think the Hammer Horror movies for example, and desperately in need of some new blood. Blood that came in the form of Ira Levin's novel Rosemary's Baby in 1967. The novel used modern witchcraft and Satanism for its hook, an idea that instantly made horror high concept once again, and opened the floodgates for novels and movies such as The Exorcist, The Omen, and everything in the horror boom that followed. But looking closely at Rosemary's Baby, it's clear that it's Murray's idea of witchcraft we're dealing with, though perhaps also owing a little to Dennis Wheatley. Evil or not, these clearly are Murray's witches. It's a religion, she said. It's an early religion that got pushed into the corner. All right, he said, but today? Honey, it's 1966. This book was published in 1933, Rosemary said. There were covens in Europe. That's what they're called, the groups, the congregations, covens, in Europe, in North and South America, in Australia. Do you think they've all died out in just 33 years? They've got a coven here, Minnie and Roman, with Laura Louise and the Fountains and the Gilmores and the Weeses. Those parties with the flute and the chanting, those are Sabbaths or Esbats or whatever they are. Honey, Guy said, don't get excited, let's... Read what they do, Guy, she said, holding the book open at him and jabbing a page with her forefinger. They use blood in their rituals, because blood has power, and the blood that has the most power is a baby's blood. A baby that hasn't been baptised, and they use more than the blood, they use the flesh too. For God's sake, Rosemary. Why have they been so friendly to us, she demanded. Because they're friendly people? What do you think they are, maniacs? Yes, maniacs who think they have magic power, who think they're real storybook witches, who perform all sorts of crazy rituals and practices because they're sick and crazy maniacs. Those black candles Minnie bought us were from the Black Mass. But perhaps her most important and lasting influence was to be on the world of the contemporary neo-pagans, the world of Wicca. For Murray influenced another extremely strange British eccentric who was shortly to take her ideas to the next logical place and found in reality what Murray had only conjured up in feverish imagination. His name was Gerald Gardner, but his story shall have to wait for another time. You've been listening to another spellbinding episode of Wide Atlantic Weird. We're finally on Facebook now, so if you'd like to help the show, currently, the best thing you can do is find us there and share our episodes with the world. Feel free to reach out and send us on any strange stories that have happened to you. We promise to believe them, as long as the evidence is good. And once again, thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. Following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.